On Sunday mornings, we're usually preaching and teaching straight through entire books of the Bible. So we don't, we don't wanna take the Bible out of context and use its words to force our agenda because sometimes we're idiots and we just don't, we wanna be careful on that one. Rather, we believe that these are God's words, his agenda, and we want to honor him and honor his word by studying scripture on its own terms. And we think that thinking about the Bible like this makes its message compelling and relevant for everyday life. So this approach to preaching and teaching currently has us in the New Testament book of John's. Here's what we're gonna do. <clears throat> through the rest of the spring, it's March, I can say spring, I think. Um, through the rest of the spring, we're gonna go through John 12, take a break for the summer, and then at the end of August, pick back up in John chapter 13. That's kind of a natural break in John's narrative and flow of thought. And so that's our game plan. Also, if you've been with us for any length of time during our study of, of John, you know that John has a definitive purpose for why he's writing. He tells us at the very end of his Jesus biography, he tells us in John chapter 20, he says, I write these things to you, meaning the Gospel of John, the book, I write these things to you that you would believe, and believe means totally trust and swear complete allegiance to Jesus as the King, the Christ, and that by believing in him, you would experience the kind of life that God wants for you. That is John's purpose in writing his gospel. So John wants us to see Jesus for who he is and then respond with humble and confident faith. And we get to do this again in John chapter nine. And if you would like to follow along in your Bibles, we think that will be awesome. John chapter nine, I promise we'll get there in a few minutes. Still a big fan of the paperback Bible that you can touch, like you smell, smells good. If you like to swipe and scroll there, there are probably some cool highlighting things I'm sure that you could do that you can't do here. But I'm a big fan of this one that's made from trees. However you get a Bible in front of you, we'd love for you to follow along in a few minutes. I promise we'll get there. John chapter nine. About 15 years ago, I asked my uh, favorite hippie art professor if I could marry his daughter the happily exquisite Sarah Joanna Craft. I fixed her last name. Um, I used to be his TA in college, his teacher's assistant, and we had had several talks before, and he had previously said that he was very excited for Sarah and I to get married, but on that fateful October day, about 15 years ago, Jim Craft said that he would not give me his blessing to marry his daughter, so I slashed his tires, the end. Just kidding, that's a joke, don't worry about it. Um, <clears throat> But now, looking back, <clears throat> like hindsight, 2020, all that stuff, looking back, I, I can kind of see how he got there, like I understand his reasoning. Here, here, here it is. Sarah is the youngest of three. She was just a couple weeks shy of 21 when I went to talk to him. If a 20-year-old college co student comes to me and goes, we're ready to get married, I go, shut up and keep praying. Like, that's, that's, that's what I do. But uh, she was the first one of the three kids to uh, get married, and she's the only girl out of the three. And as a father, giving, your way, giving away your daughter is tough, especially to a, a bag of dumb like me, right? So all these things are working against me. But <clears throat> the biggest reason why he said no on that day is that Sarah was recently diagnosed with Crohn's disease and she wasn't in the greatest place of her life as far as her health was concerned. <clears throat> and if you don't have Wikipedia on lock in your brain, Crohn's is an intestinal disorder that among many things, it means that your body doesn't process food correctly and it can lead to abdominal pain, uh, vomiting, fever, weight loss, and other side effects. I sound like a commercial. Uh, and so <clears throat> they kinda wanted to keep her close 
um, to manage her Crohn's disease. And, and, and I get that. This is, this is a crazy thing that she had been just diagnosed with. But they eventually uh, said yes, uh, we're married, uh, and have even since apologized and, and thanked me for taking care of her the way that I have um, as we've wrestled with her Crohn's nemesis. And while I, I do love my in-laws, I know some people don't, but I love my in-laws, and while I'm thankful <clears throat> for their thanks, their thanks to me uh, hasn't taken away a whole lot of pain. The first couple of years of marriage, even if she was being good and avoiding trigger foods that she knew would mess her up, some foods would just randomly send her into a lot of pain and agony, and not to be too graphic, but I lost count of the amount of times that I stood behind her with my hand on her shoulder as she hung her head over the toilet because her body fought back against whatever she ate. <clears throat> I remember we, we had an apartment uh, on Pelham Road behind, right before the Walmart was built over on Pelham, thank you, Lord. Um, and <clears throat> several times um, when she was in the bathroom having an episode, I would line up all my hardback theology books on my bed and just <clears throat> go and yell and pray and punch them as hard as I could because my wife is in there in physical pain and I couldn't do anything about it and I was angry about it. And we tried different doctors, we tried different specialists, we tried different procedures, different medicines, we tried natural medicines, and on top of all this, we were newly married, and so we just didn't have cash, you know, rushing out of our bank. Um, we spent several thousands of dollars in those early years, money that we didn't have <clears throat> to help her get better. And uh, without question, it's the hardest thing we've ever had to deal with in our marriage. Now, <clears throat> um, weirdly and thankfully, her Crohn's almost completely went into remission during pregnancy and nursing. Um, and we were very, very thankful for her body to have a break, but you just can't keep having babies. That's not a thing. Um, and so after babies and nursing and stuff, it, it came back. And when it did, it came back even stronger. And in 2014, um, with two young, beautiful kids at home, my wife was 83 pounds and she had no energy. She couldn't sleep at night. And she was on the, on the floor in the fetal position like four or five times a day for 90 seconds each time. And without hesitation, she would tell me that it was worse pain than when she was in labor with the babies. And to say that we didn't know what we needed to do was uh, the understatement of our entire marriage. And it was a really, really hard space to be in. Now, um, when I look back on it, and I try to process it hindsight. Obviously there were times that uh, I didn't trust God the way I should have. There were probably times where I thought I knew better than God, like come on man. There were also <clears throat> times where Sarah and I, maybe we thought that God was being withholding or he was being distant because we wanted to know why. We're like, God, like, what's, what's up? We're, we're praying, come on. We, we're trying to depend on you, she's still sick. You've given us these two beautiful kids, these wonderful kids and <clears throat> Now we don't have energy to take care of them. She doesn't have the strength and I gotta go work to pay for the procedures that aren't helping us with what her, pro like, God help, what's the deal? And uh, <clears throat> I've learned this as I've gotten older. I don't wanna read my story onto yours, but maybe you've been in a, a place like that. Um, maybe, maybe it's past, maybe you're in the middle of one right now, but maybe you've been as sad as you were mad and you didn't know what to do and maybe you got super, super angry and frustrated with God. Maybe you got so angry at God that you just didn't wanna trust him anymore and now the only reason you do the church thing or the Christianity thing is because it, 
helps you check some sub-psychological list. It feels like an obligation or something. Like, I don't know how you process these things in, in your life. But if I could go back to when we were engaged and newly married and I could sit younger Jim and Sarah down, I would say, guys, as hard as you can, try this. <clears throat> when you're tempted to blame God, tr just try not to do it, even if you're confused about the thing. And, and when you're tempted to quit trusting him, just please don't do it, even if you don't feel like you have enough reasons to trust him. Rather, start to ask questions like this. God, what do you want to teach us in this kind of pain? God, how do you want to use this kind of pain for your glory, to put yourself on display? Those are harder questions. Those questions you don't naturally run to, right? And I think that the God of the Bible is that sovereign. Like, I believe that. He's more powerful than the categories we put him in. He's more understanding and wise than the boxes of our circumstances that we put him in. He's strong enough to teach us and grow us and use our pain for his purposes, even if we can't see how it's all gonna work out, like the mechanics of it. And for these reasons, <clears throat> we need to learn to ask questions like, God, how are you going to make something good come out of this? I don't know how you're gonna do it. Please do it, God, how? And we need to ask that kind of stuff in faith and not in cynicism. And that's the kind of question that we need to wrestle with today. So even if we're beyond the thing, <clears throat> and it's in your past, like there might be another one on the way. So we need to learn to ask in faith, Lord, how do you want to use this? How do you want to bring beauty out of these ashes? Or to use John's own terminology, what does it look like to believe and have faith in Jesus as the king when it comes to the pain and suffering in your life? And today, we'll be helped along as we think about these questions with John chapter nine. And I got good news for you if you're a Bible nerd like myself. <clears throat> we got a whole lot of Bible in front of us. 41 verses to be exact, and why shy away? I'm gonna read the whole stinking thing. So, um, I love how the chapter moves. There's a lot in here. It might be cool for you if you just wanna not follow along in your Bible and just listen and kinda immerse yourself in the story and be a, a Jewish fly on the wall, if you will, and feel what all the people in the story are feeling, because we're gonna read all 41 verses, and a, a lot is happening here. And then after I read, I will say, this is the word of God for the people of God, and you can respond with gratitude for Holy Scripture, and your line is, thanks be to God, make it count. You two auditorium, one, we all know I have spies, so here's the deal. God, what are you doing in and through our pain? <clears throat> John 9, verses one through 41, here we go. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, well, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night's coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. I mean, sent. And so he went and washed and he came back seeing, verse eight, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some were like, yeah, that's he. And others said, no, he's kind of like him, though. But he kept saying, I am the man, right? So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, oh, this man named Jesus 
He made some mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go and Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. Verse 13. And then they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, I told you, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. How hard is that to understand? Some of the Pharisees said, this guy's not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents, the guy who received his sight, and they asked him, hey, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, <clears throat> we know that this is our son, that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's, he's of age, he can speak for himself. His parents said this because they were scared of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anybody should confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, they were gonna be put out of the synagogue. And that's why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this Jesus man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, though I was blind, <clears throat> now I see. Great song lyric idea. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've already told you. You didn't listen. What do you wanna hear? You wanna hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you're, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. Nanny boo boo, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this guy, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin. You would teach us? And they cast him out, verse 35. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who, may, who see may become blind. Some Pharisees near him heard these things and said, oh yeah, are we blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now you say, we see, and your guilt remains. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. <clears throat> now, uh, I wish this was a 10-hour sermon. You're welcome. There's so, so, so much here. Alas, we don't have that kind of time. So here's what I wanna do. <clears throat> I wanna show you the main point, and then I want to make some observations about how that main point unfolds in the chapter, and then briefly at the end, I want to talk about how we should respond to it. So three things. Main point, let's see how the main point unfolds, and then let's think about how we respond to it. So the main point, here we go. Jesus and his disciples <clears throat> see a man who was born blind, and how did they know he was born blind? Here's the answer, no clue. So they could have been passing through Jerusalem for a long time. This guy's story could have been known. They could have talked to him in previous years. Apparently this guy could have been a popular and loud blind guy. We don't know, but this is what we <clears throat> do know. The disciples asked Jesus in verse two, look, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And yes, 
There are some old like rabbinical musings about how kids in the womb could have uh, sinned. Rabbis had too much time on their hands. They cite Jacob and Esau wrestling in Rebekah's womb and they, they think that that's one of the things. But the point here is that the disciples are curious about, watch this, a connection between personal sin and personal suffering. That's what the disciples are just kind of thinking about. Now we're not talking about how all suffering in the world relates to all sin in the world. That's a different discussion. We're talking about it on a personal level. And if you say that this connection between personal sin and personal suffering is always true, that's a terrifying assumption to make. That is like me gently rubbing Sarah's back as she hangs her head over the toilet and quietly whispering, if you'd just repent a little bit, we wouldn't have to do this whole thing, right? Right? That is at two birds with one stone. Worst husband ever, worst theologian ever. Right there, that's, that's what that is. <clears throat> and making a concrete connection between those two things is not good. But guess what? Sadly, this absolute connection between, between personal sin and personal suffering is one of the foundations for the global prosperity gospel. That God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And if you're not, it's your problem. It's a sin problem. And you need to have more faith. So that false message is being preached all across the world, especially in poorer countries, and it's not good news at all. And here's the deal, the disciples are inquiring about some small, uh, diluted version about that. That's what they're thinking about in verse two. And notice Jesus' response in verse three. Look at verse three. It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now here's the point of the passage, and I would underline, highlight, or do whatever you do if you're writing in your Bible. The little word that in verse two, that he was born blind, and the little word that at the end of verse three, that the works of God might be displayed. You ready for this? Same word and massively important for this entire story. Here's why. This is a purpose word. It is the reason for the blindness and the intention for the pain. This is a word about why. However, there is a difference between, it's the same Greek word, but there's a difference between the that in verse two and the that in verse three. Follow me. The that in verse two is backwards looking. Who sinned? The that in verse three is forwards looking. To think about why and look backwards is an issue of cause. What caused it? To think about why and look forward is an issue of purpose, right? An intention, to look back and say, why have I been blind? Like, why have I had Crohn's? Why have I struggled with depression or anger or addiction or physical pain? To, to look back into the cause and ask why can be like snorkeling in the mud or staring through the fog. Clarity is impossible. But to ask why and look forward to the purpose of the pain Jesus does that directly. <clears throat> it's so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Our friend from Greenville, John Piper, says this so perfectly. I wish we could just put this on screen forever and, and think about it. This is so good. The reason causes are not the ultimate explanation for things is that God is not ultimately a responder, but a planner. Dude, that's good, right? The implication of this for your life is profound. No matter what mess you're in or what pain you're in, the causes of that mess or pain are not decisive in explaining it. What is decisive in explaining it is God's purpose. Yes, there are causes, some of them <clears throat> your fault maybe, and some of them not. But 
Those causes are not decisive in determining the meaning of your mess or your pain. What is absolutely decisive is God's purpose, that his works might be displayed. And if you hold fast to Jesus, God's purpose for your mess and your pain will be a good purpose, and it will be worth everything you have to endure. Isn't that so good? And guess what this is? <clears throat> this is Piper just riffing on Romans 8, 28. We know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That's what Jesus is trying to get his disciples and this blind guy to believe and feel. So what does Jesus do about it? Well, he was doodling in the dirt a couple weeks ago and now he's spitting in the dirt. Why? Because he's Jesus and he always throws curveballs. Get ready. He makes mud with his spit and he rubs his messianic saliva mud pies in the guy's eyes and tells him to go swimming. And the guy comes back and he goes, hey, I'm not blind anymore. You know, standard, just standard Jesus stuff. And here's the deal. Jesus could have said, hey, open your eyes. And it would have done, it, it would have been fine. It would have, it would have worked. So my question is, Jesus, hey, uh, quick question, why? why? Why are you doing it like that? Well, Jesus is smart. And he knows that these religious leaders, Charlie talked about this a few weeks ago, have 39 things that you can't do on the Sabbath 39 legalistic rules that they've added to the one in the Ten Commandments. And one of them was that you couldn't knead dough or make mud for bricks. Dough and mud, same word in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. So it's the same thing. So Jesus, <laughs> oh, I love Jesus. He is healing the guy in a way that bothers the religious snobs. Isn't that so good? He's like, aha, tricky, right? I love Jesus. This is so great. I love this, this is, this is excellent. <clears throat> and he's doing it to do, guess what, guess what? To further put the works of God on display in and through this guy's life. And here's the thing, the blind guy's not thinking about this. He's thinking, I wanna see, right? He's not thinking, man, I wonder if the religious elite could really take one in the, in the ribs here. No, he's not thinking about that. So here's the point, if you are so daring and humble and trusting as to ask, God, what are you doing in my pain? Part of the answer is that it's gonna be something bigger than you, right? Sarah got her gallbladder out in 2014, and we thought that was gonna be it. Like, we were assured by medical professionals, oh, this is really the, the deal, and it did help. It, it helped a little bit. But then it, it came back, and it, again, it came back really, really hard. But near the end of the summer of 2014, and I don't know how else to explain this, and I'm also not a physician, um, but near the end of summer 2014, we had uh, a couple of times where we were in small groups with friends, and we had friends lay hands on Sarah, and the girls would lay hands on her belly and pray for her. And it wasn't instantaneous, but um, my wife's basically healed. Her Crohn's, is, her Crohn's is in remission right now, and we, dude, we super praise Jesus for that. But here's the deal. <clears throat> We still don't know why all the way. Like, we're trying to figure out the purpose of that thing. Like, why didn't he heal her years before? We prayed for years. Like, he doesn't owe the healing to us. He doesn't owe the explanation to us. But it sure makes faith a lot harder. Like, like what took God so long? I don't, I don't know. <clears throat> but Sarah's healing has definitely made both of us aware of how people think about God when they're going through stuff like that. Like, it's really opened our eyes to that, and it's kinda like this blind guy. Do you think he had heard of Jesus before? The answer's probably yes. So why didn't Jesus heal the blind guy when he was previously in Jerusalem? Cause he was, right? And, and what do you think the blind guy was thinking when he hears Jesus just like, 
hawk and spit, and then he feels like the mud paste on his eye. What's going through this guy's mind, right? The pain will always come with questions, but better questions are forward-looking ones because the message of the Bible is that God is always trustworthy and he's always loving and he's always, doesn't matter what you feel, think, or perceive, he's always bringing life out of death in beautiful and surprising ways, even if we can't make the connections of how he's doing it. So, our blind friend can finally see what happens next. Well, in response to the healing, John five, or John gives us five conversations that flesh out how the works of God are being displayed in this guy's life because Jesus said that was the purpose of his pain. Five conversations. The five conversations are the blind guy and his neighbors in eight through 12. They couldn't believe it was really him. They were like, are you sure? That's, that's the blind guy and his neighbors. The second one is the blind guy and the Pharisees in 13 to 17. They couldn't believe that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. How dare he? He couldn't be from God. And then because the Pharisees were struggling with the whole thing, the third conversation is the Pharisees and the blind guy's parents in 18 to 23, and they go interrogate him. Pharisees are trying to prove that this thing's not true. The fourth conversation is the Pharisees and the blind guy again in verses 24 through 34. The blind guy at that point was standing up for Jesus a little bit and and was defending uh, uh, what he was doing and couldn't deny that God was working in his life. And finally, the last conversation is the blind guy and Jesus starting in verse 35, and here he, he bows before Jesus, calls him Lord, and he worships him for, for who Jesus truly, truly is. But also, as John closes the chapter, he records plainly what maybe we've been thinking all along, and that is that the blindness being talked about is not merely physical. Yes, I believe that there was an actual guy who was actual, actually blind and God healed him, but Hebrew writing in the Bible does stuff in layers sometimes, and, and it's really kind of <clears throat> fun. I think there's a deeper blindness at stake. So it's one thing to be blind or have a disease or, or have an addiction or something like that, but it's a completely different thing to have it and then not know it, right? That doubles down on the problem. If you have a problem and you don't know it, it has you, right? And that's how the chapter ends. The Pharisees are blind to their own blindness, Do you see that? And if you think about that, guess what? That means that physical problems are almost a gracious mercy and a gracious reminder from God because you know what? We're often aware of them. But I wonder how many of us are blind to our pride. We're blind to our presumption. We Hey, we think we're good, but we're actually just greedy. We're, We're so blind that we think, hey, you know what? I'm going to try to manipulate and deceive people, but in reality, you're manipulating and deceiving yourself. That's a tragic place to be, to be like, dude, I am doing life right. But in reality, you're causing hurt to yourself and others. You're blind to your blindness, and that's exactly where these Pharisees are. Look at verse 41, you can't make this up. If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but because you say, we see, your guilt remains. They are blind to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah who has come to rescue them. And Jesus is saying that to them, and guess what that is? That's the works of God being displayed in this formerly blind guy's life. (coughs) And this sounds strange, but when you live faithfully to God, trusting his love, depending on his word, depending on his spirit, it's a picture to an unbelieving world of what true life is supposed to be like. 
It's, it's God's mercy. It shows them that they are living in darkness and not light. Hopefully, it shows them that the trajectory of their lives is a dead end, but that real life can be found in Jesus. Again, I know that sometimes early in our marriage, I too quickly turned to frustration instead of faith, but overall, Sarah and I don't blame God for those days. We don't. And I pray that how we tried to look to God through all of that is a picture to others that God is more dependable than we are confused. And I hope that how we have faith in him is a gracious nudge to others that life without trusting Jesus is, is like blindness. And if that's done well, and that's done humbly, that's part of the works of God being displayed in your life. But there's more here. <coughs> Charlie in John 8 talked about what it means that Jesus is the light of the world. And he cut all the lights off on us and my son got scared for a second. But here, in John 9, Jesus says it again. He again says he's the light of the world. And that means that John and Jesus want us to think about the connection between blindness and light. And it's, it's not a tough connection to make. Blindness is like darkness and vision is like light. But I think our text has a little bit of nuance to add to that. <clears throat> and here's what I mean. Look at the screens. Maybe you have one of these in your house. And this story in John chapter 9 makes me <clears throat> think of this, and here's how. The left switch is like the guy's physical sight. Verse 25, I was blind, but now I see. Click, like switch flipped. But the dimmer knob on the right is like his spiritual sight, and here's what I mean. Maybe you notice this. When his neighbors first come to him and go, hey, dude, what happened? He was like, some man did it, right? He turns the knob a little bit. And then the Pharisees come back to him, and they're like, what really happened? He was like, this guy was a prophet, okay? And then later, after the Pharisees go talk to his mom and dad, Pharisees come back again, and they start pushing a little bit harder, and the guy starts defending Jesus. Like, nobody, nobody has ever done anything like this. And so that knob is turned up even more. And then, finally, because the works of God are being displayed in this guy's life, Jesus uh, the chapter ends with Jesus talking to the guy and the guy bows down before him, calls him Lord, believes in him and worships him, right? So that's how that right knob is turned all the way up to full brightness right there. Again, to me, these two light switches are physical sight on the left and spiritual sight on the right. One is instantaneous and one is progressive and takes time. And here is the toughest thing for us to own. Are you ready? the right knob is more important than the left switch. And here's what I mean. <clears throat> and Jesus, please give us grace to actually believe this. If the switch is never flipped for your physical healing, he's still God, okay? Like, if Sarah's fight with Crohn's disease was still every day, I pray <clears throat> that in some, in some mysterious way that would only turn the right knob brighter. Like he doesn't teach you in your pain only through results, right? He, he, he doesn't use our suffering only when it's gone and he doesn't have designs for your hardships only when they are past. Rather, they are all invitations to not be blind to our blindness, to see Jesus for who he truly is and to acknowledge that he is Lord and to worship him. And the right knob is also more important because for those who do see Jesus with the spiritual eyes of faith, we will have resurrection bodies one day in the new heavens and the new earth, no longer inclined to disease or disorder. And so for the meantime, 
God wants to use your pain for his purposes. And sometimes that means physical healing and sometimes it may not mean that. But either way, what this is teaching is clear, that there is a blindness darker than physical blindness and beyond that, that Jesus is the light of the world inviting us into sight and salvation. That's what this text is teaching us. So, what do we do with this? How do we respond to all of this? Well, John's stated goal, the response for every message should be, John 20, 31, that we would believe, that we would believe in Jesus. That's what the guy does in, in verse 38 at the end of the chapter. And believing in Jesus is about eternal life, and eternal life is now. It's not one day and sweet by and by in the future. It's, it's now, and eternal life in the now includes all of life. So maybe your response is this. Maybe what you need to do is you need to more fervently believe God for actual physical healing in your life. Maybe you don't pray in faith anymore, and he's big enough that you should. Maybe you need to have your small group pray over you and lay hands on you, and you need to ask in fervent, faithful, humble prayer. Maybe you need to trust him more wholeheartedly that he will strengthen your marriage or break your addiction or pacify your depression or heal your pain. And again, if he doesn't, he's still good and he's still God and we're never gonna run out of reasons to pursue him in faith. Or maybe you need to, like your immediate circumstance is staring you down and you need to look beyond it and you need to go, God, in what way is this thing bigger than me? And how might you want to use this for your purposes? What if, what if God wants you to come alongside who, somebody who is struggling with the same thing that you're struggling with? And all you can think about is your personal and immediate comfort. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying, what if you looked up? What if there's somebody in this church on your same row, in your neighborhood, who needs an example of what it's like to rely on God when stuff gets really, really crazy and hard in life? What if God wants you to share your story so that other people can have hope in Jesus? Revelation 12, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. What if God's inviting you into that? I mean, think about it. Jesus said that this guy was blind so that the works of God could be displayed in his life and we're still talking about him, right? Jesus knows what he's doing. We have no idea how vast God's wisdom is and how unique his providence is. But remember, the right light is the most important one, the, the, the dimmer one. <clears throat> Meaning, what does he want to teach you in and through your pain? He wants to open your eyes more and more to Jesus, the, the light of the world. He wants you to grow in your understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. God wants to see you know and trust and love and follow and pursue and believe and obey and worship Jesus more and more, especially because the ultimate work of God displayed among us is Jesus himself in his cross and resurrection. As we keep going through John, we'll see Jesus continue to use language like this about the Father working, about the works that God is doing, and he uses that language right up until the night that he's arrested before he goes to the cross. John is wanting us to see that with the way that he uses, uses language. <clears throat> and John's also 
so intentional in his language that when Jesus anoints the man's eyes with mud, which is backwards and doesn't make sense, I mean, really think about it, it's making him more blind to put that dumb mud paste stuff on his face, right? It's backwards, it doesn't make sense. And it says that Jesus anoints his eyes. The only other time that John uses that word anoint is when the soldiers anoint Jesus with a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And guess what that is? That's backwards and it doesn't make any sense. For the king of kings, for the Christ, the author of life, to be put to death. And in little things like this, John wants us to know that the cross is the supreme and ultimate and climactic place where we can see God's purpose in pain. Because Jesus was without sin, he's the only one who never, ever deserved to die. But he gave himself up for us in our place for our sins. And this means that the cross is the greatest reminder that he fully fathoms all of the pain that we go through. You might be in the, in the middle of pain and go, nobody understands, nobody gets it. Nobody can really identify with what, no, I'm so sorry, you're wrong. Jesus felt it all. He felt that pressure and more than you're feeling. He can sympathize with you. He understands. And at the cross, darkness thought it won. It had seemingly quenched the light of the world. But don't forget John's introduction. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it or overpower it or lay hold of it. Jesus' triumph over sin and death and pain and disease means that those things don't have the final word for his people. So here's the deal. God, what are you doing in my pain? He's using it to jog your mind to the cross. He's teaching you that he understands all of your suffering. And he's calling to mind that the greatest pain is unbelief. Get that. The greatest pain is unbelief, not trusting him. And in all this, he's prompting us to share our story of faith so that others might hear and others might follow Jesus. He is using your pain, he's doing it, past, present, and future pain to somehow uniquely, sovereignly, mysteriously, providentially put his works on display, especially his great work of salvation in Jesus. Here's the deal. The God of the Bible is that sovereign. Even if that's hard to wrap your brain around. So Fellowship Greenville, this is the gospel for us today. That in Jesus, God can bring sight out of blindness, leaping out of lameness, hearing out of deafness, wholeness out of brokenness, and life out of death. And God wants to put the Jesus story of grace and truth on display in our lives. And that's super, super, really, really good news, and I hope you believe that this morning. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, just like the woman in adultery, we're all also the man born blind apart from Jesus. So we need you to stir in our hearts so that Jesus would be just unstoppably worthy and awesome to us. Holy Spirit, we need you to open our eyes to the different kinds of blindness in our lives and in the world around us, please. And we trust you, even if we don't feel it, we trust you to use us, to use our pain in whatever way you will to bring about sight and salvation. Please, 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 Lord. Father, do that for your glory. 
Jesus, we thank you that you're our sympathetic, rescuing, healing king. We thank you that you're the light of the world. So shine brightly through us, please. Jesus, we love you. You're the best. Amen.